Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome to Tarot Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hey there. Hello. So today on the show, we are going to talk case files, including Lori Vallow, Daybell, which I know everybody is, well, anybody who's interested in true crime is watching that go along. Mm -hmm. We're a couple of weeks in when we're recording this, but I did want to mention that anybody who is interested in our horror shows that we do on Friday, I am going to start to be giving away things, rentals to movies and DVDs and different things on that show. So be sure to tune in. And, and I would say tune in timely because I only have like a couple of each things. If you get it the day of or close to when I would put up the episode, then you're more likely to like follow the steps and get the thing if you want it. So I wanted to say that. Okay. So you've been watching the Lori Vallow trial. I've been following it. Yeah. I have been following it. It's just getting crazier and crazier, and she is something else. She is. I mean, I think my overwhelming thought process around it is that I understand her affect is incongruent. I understand her reactions are really strange. But I think we kind of always knew that. Like mm-hmm. every interview we ever saw with her <laughs> sort of seemed like that. Mm-hmm. But then there's this idea of the competency situation, right? Where mm-hmm. it took them 10 months to make her, quote unquote, make her competent for trial, which. The, the whole thing is suspicious to me. I haven't followed it. I haven't, I didn't follow the competency pieces close, but I know that one of the things I found interesting slash kind of bizarre is uh, this whole so Colby Ryan her son testifies and he's pretty much has testified against her because he stated that she killed his siblings like I get right you know he's he's very passionate which obviously I understand that and his uh, and when he was being cross-examined by her attorneys they had asked whether she had tried to you know use any of this dogma or whatever with him regarding zombie apocalypse and spirits and all this stuff to which he said no. And I just find that an interesting piece of information because the forensic psychologist in me is sitting there going, well, how is it that you could, if you are delusional, you're pretty sophisticated because you know who to talk to about it, when to talk about it, when to use it, when to not talk about it. She knew that Colby Ryan has a mind of his own. He was suspicious of her for a while and she was sensible enough to not try and persuade him. Mm -hmm. And to me, there lies some questionable credibility in how mentally ill she is because you and I both know that mental health doesn't, mental illness doesn't discriminate. 
when mm-hmm. someone is psychotic or delusional, right. uh, they don't get to pick and choose when they use that. So mm-hmm. I just feel that the, it, that just feels like strategy to me. But I don't know. What do you think? It's hard for me because like on the phone calls that are part of the trial now, they have these jailhouse phone calls to Colby. And on those calls, she says a lot of things like you weren't there and you don't know what happened. And he's like, well, tell me what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, he's trying to get her to confess. And then she backs off and she has that knowledge of that's right. not saying she knows what you're not supposed to say. Yeah. And that sh- tells me like she know she knew back then that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining, I wonder if her defense is going to be like, well, I was sitting in the room with Chad and he was telling me not to say anything. You know, she's, I imagine the defense is Chad made me do it. Oh, possibly. I could see that. So I can imagine her and it might be true. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying, cause I don't really know. I wasn't in the room and I'm not inside their heads, but it's like, she'll just say, well, I was in the room with Chad and he was telling me that I shouldn't say anything and whatever, because you heard in the opening statements where her defense said, remember, we're only on, we're only looking at what Lori did, not what, not what anyone else did, meaning not what Chad did, not what uh, Lori's brother did, uh, all of that. So yeah, the strategy is kind of clear. The strategy is clear. And then the whole idea behind competency, if people don't know what that means is it, it, is less to do with whether the person is mentally stable. It has everything to do with whether they are stable and cognitively aware enough to assist in their own trial and to understand the charges that are being brought against them. So I think, you know, when you're watching this, if you don't know what competency to stand trial is, people might be confused. Well, well, she's still showing up a certain way or she's still, well, sure, because whatever, whether she's feigning mental illness or there is a level of delusional disorder or psychosis going on that can still be present and someone be restored to competency at the same time because competency competency is actually a legal standard it's not a psychological standard and it just really means that the person is now sensible enough and and clear enough that they can say, oh yeah, I do want you to say this, or I don't want you to say this, or I want to plea this way, or I don't want to plea that way. And when you're found incompetent to stand trial, they're suggesting that you don't, you're not stable enough to make those decisions. So I I mean, 10 months to me just says that her attorneys were just trying to buy time. Yeah. And I think one of the things we can also uh, consider is the high profileness of this case and what that uh, forensic psychologist or whoever did the assessment about her incompetence it was, you know, there's a lot of political stuff going on and like better safe than sorry, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is so high profile. And also because they knew, I'm sure that, you know, after a year of whatever they did to help her be competent, that people were, if they had done that right away and she's acting the way she's acting now or worse, people are going to say she's not competent to stand trial. They could have used that argument, right? Of like, right. And the court of public opinion would be like, Ooh, she's not competent, et cetera. But now they've done their due diligence. They did this thing. They took it 10 months, et cetera. And they, and everyone can say, well, I guess this is the best that it, you know, there's a there's something at play there where mm-hmm. the optics of that are mm-hmm. better than just going into trial and her acting as odd as she is. Yeah, but I don't know another another person using religious beliefs to sure to yeah. kill people. Yeah. Ooh, I think you have something to say about that, don't you? <laughs> 
Well, it's just another one. We talk about that a lot. That's how it goes. But delusional belief systems are a part of life, and they lend themselves very well to religion, obviously, because they take any religion or any religious book and they make it literal as if the Bible is true and not extreme and not mythology and an allegory for life lessons, which Mm -hmm. is what a lot of religious material is. And I think that's beautiful and lovely. And I believe in myth and I believe the power of myth in our lives, but this is where you take the myth and you say it's true and that people are zombie. Like, I don't know what they're doing there. Yeah. (laughs) Like Chad has a whole, I'm the second coming of Christ. I write these books and, and I, I have a whole system about zombies and people. Yeah, so, he does. You know, he's, he's got a lot to say. He's doing his thing. Yeah. And, and I don't know what her part is in that yet. I, I, it's, it's really interesting. All I do know is that I do believe she had a part in killing her children. I just don't know. Oh, yeah. What that is, because That's I right. don't know, you know, I'm going to keep watching. She didn't come home one day and say, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they were here and now they're not, you know, I mean. Let's go to Hawaii. What the what yeah. the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, like your kids are gone and you're not going to have a reaction to that. Right. You're just going to say like, yeah, they're in a better place and you don't know what it was like. And, and yeah, they're, no. or they're safe. One day they're safe and then they're in a better She's place. She's super you know. culpable and especially with the charges that they chose. Sure. So uh, I did want to mention the next, on to the next thing. I wanted to mention this Netflix documentary called In the Name of God, A Holy Betrayal. I wanted to mention the case that's associated with that. Mm -hmm. It's on Netflix, and Netflix and Korean public broadcaster MBC, uh, not NBC like ours, uh, defeated a court application for an injunction to stop the airing of the documentary because, of course, they don't want it to air. Because Netflix has the global rights, meaning Korea too, for this eight-part series that began airing in March. The show examines the chilling true stories of four Korean leaders claiming to be prophets and exposes the dark side of unquestioning belief. So, you know, more culty stuff. This guy looks terrifying, by the way. When <laughs> I went on, to, Have you watched the doc yet? No. We might have to do that. So among its subjects is Christian Gospel Mission, also known as Providence, and also known as Jesus Morningstar or JMS, which is kind of the way everybody talks about this, the JMS cult. I'm going to start calling you Jesus Morningstar. (laughs) Please don't. Uh, It shares those initials with its controversial leader, who's currently awaiting trial in Korea for sexually assaulting some of his female followers. So this guy has... uh, (laughs) He was previously served 10 years in prison for raping three Korean female followers while on overseas trips between 2003 and 2006. He fled Korea when the rape charges were filed then, but was deported from China to Korea in 2008, obviously to take his sentencing and trial or whatever they do there. He was jailed in Korea that year and released in 2018, but was required to wear an electronic ankle bracelet. So not a whole lot of, you know, not a whole lot of punishment for that. His current charges include what Korea calls quasi-rape. Oh, Jesus. As sexual intercourse that takes advantage of a person's unconsciousness or inability to resist. We could just call that rape here, but they call it quasi-rape. And of course, in translation, I have no idea if that's, if quasi-rape is a great translation either. So I want to, I don't know not Korean. That's true. It you may know. have been interpreted, yeah, I mean, translated 
poorly. Yeah, somewhat rape, you know. Yeah, kind of kind of rape. rape. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm confused. Rape but anyway. light, not yeah. to make light out of rape. No, we're not. They are. They are. Upon conviction, a prison sentence of at least three years. Oh, is mandatory. What a hardship. Yeah. Okay. So that's what's happening with him. The alleged rapes are said to have happened between 2018 and 2021 at the JMS, what they call a sanctuary. He's denied the charges, threatened libel action against the media, which, of course, is why they wanted to get the Netflix documentary taken down. Sure. And, uh, hmm, yeah, the documentary is... Here's the thing is they want to say, oh, this stuff isn't true. And... The judge basically said it's very hard to say it's not true when the documentary is filled with first person accounts. Yeah. And a lot of like video and audio footage. Well, this is I mean, here's the thing. And I'm going to talk about this on a, on one of our Monday mini casts coming up is the idea of victim credibility and trauma. Mm-hmm. And especially when you see and I've I've been an evaluator on cases where I'm asked to interview upwards of 15 people and I do these preliminary interviews and make, um, you know, a, a, a provisional opinion. Sure. And a lot of my opinions and I'll get, you know, 20 page declarations written about me right. <laughs> like going, this is defamation and blah, blah. She and it's sucks. like, it, she, yeah, she's not incredible. <laughs> and that and all that, you know, and this is, and these systems will write because I'm basically saying, listen, you have 20 people <laughs> with their own individual detailed stories that when I ask specific questions, they can elaborate on half of these people haven't even spoken to each other in years and they're all collaborating on the same thing. And it's a wide known media story. It's not my job to prove that it's happened or it hasn't happened. It's already been decided that it's happened. So for then for you to say, well, it didn't cause any trauma to these people or whatever. You're like, you've got to be kidding me. And so you're going to have me go on. the point, though, either. (laughs) That's right. So, but I mean, on some of these cases, it is about like how much mental suffering and all that. And they're saying, you know, well, there isn't. It's all because of litigation abuse. And litigation abuse is essentially, they're stating that these people wouldn't be stressed if they were not on trial. And it's like, first of all, Litigation abuse is usually something that the person being prosecuted against is feeling, not the defense. Right. And secondly, you're highly minimizing or deducing or oversimplifying people's trauma reactions by saying, oh, they're just stressed because they're on trial. So it's really, I mean, the the prosecution, I mean, the, excuse me, yeah, the prosecution you know, that you do, or the defense in these situations where they're trying to get people like in this situation for the victim to hold some sort of accountability. It's really disgusting when you have this many people coming forward and be like, well, prove it. Well, we, we are, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Yeah, it's like certain Hollywood moguls. It was the same kind of thing. Yeah. Like how many people do you need? How many women do you need to come forward? That's right. 600, 700. That's right. Like how many, how many would then it be enough? Credible be? for you. That's right. <laughs> oh, it's frustrating. Lord. I, I have a weird case that popped up that I just thought sure. I would share. Cause I know, you know, we like to mix some of the true crime and horror and I never like to make light out of someone's real situation, but a, a woman by the name, the name Abby Choi. And I don't know if you read about her, Shannon, she's a model socialite. She was murdered by her husband and his family very recently. I guess the family was mad that she was no longer going to support his family with her income because she was like, okay, moving on. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. not together. Yeah. yeah, right. So they'd been living, even I think among separation, all that, they'd been living in a, a $9 million condo mm-hmm. and selling the place. Even though they were going to sell the place, she promised to continue to take care of her ex and his family and then decided, you know, for what's not included in this article is she went back on her word for one reason or the other. So a little bit about their background is she she married him very young. She was 18. And then they divorced. Um, They share a son and a daughter. And then she remarried and has more children. So apparently her new marriage wasn't legalized. So the Mm -hmm. ex believed that he would inherit anything if something were to happen to her. So he was trying to find this legal loophole. Sure. So her ex actually didn't come from a wealthy family and she did. So she's the daughter of a very successful Chinese developer in the construction business. And she made very good money herself as a model with her own businesses. So five people have been arrested in connection with the brutal murder of Abby Choi and dismemberment. She's 28 years old and four of those arrested her ex-husband, his brother and parents. They've already appeared in court. Choi had a huge following on Instagram. So a lot of people heard the story and knew who she was Let's just say that she was found completely dismembered and her body parts were actually made into a soup after a family feud over a luxury property. So they found skull, ribs, minced meat, and hair attributed to Choi were found simmering in two soup pots along with various aromatics. On Sunday, forensic police say they also found an electric saw, meat slicer, and hammer, along with face shields and black raincoats covered in specks of flesh. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I'll spare people for more details. But this is what they did with her body. That's awful. Isn't that horrible? I mean, it's one thing to murder someone for like a life insurance policy. That's bad on its own. Oh, my God. These people made dinner out of her. That is truly sick it is really disgusting well and you don't just do that because you're mad you're already sick you're already sick so then that's right then it then it's like okay so they were sick all along that's right that's right there were how many other people have they done this well they found like (laughs) parts of her torso and legs in the refrigerator i mean this was this goes beyond like hey we want money no no that's what i'm saying and you don't like i like you and i just don't become that no you know, no, no, I, we're I'm not, pissed we're not off. all of a sudden capable of right. that pissed off. I'm going to murder Shannon. I'm going to have her for Saturday and Sunday brunch. I mean, it makes sense. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Perky. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go on to another perky story. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we love about the case files episodes. They're very perky. <laughs> so. I wanted to mention uh, this Peacock true crime doc that you guys might have seen. It's called Who Killed Robert Wan? Another, (laughs) it's, you know, okay, here we go. Here's the case. After having to work late on the night of August 2nd, 2006, a man by the name of Robert Wan, spelled W-O-N-E, who was employed by a news organization called Radio Free Asia, decided to spend the night at a friend's house instead of coming home to his wife at a very late hour and waking her up from sleep. So Mr. Wan arrived to the doorstep of Joseph Price's home around 1030 in the evening. Just about one and a half hours later, the 32-year-old lawyer and husband was fatally stabbed and officially pronounced dead sometime later that same evening. 
released exclusively on Peacock. It's a it's two one hour documentary episodes, and it's called "Who Killed Robert Wan." It's still a mystery. That's like an unsolved mm, sort of deal. cold case. Yeah, so it follows the numerous head turning bizarre events that immediately took place following the alleged homicide. So it'll take you on some twists and turns, as well as the mysterious proceedings the following day. So one could say that the unusual night. Uh, you know, begins when he arrives there. But you know what? You got to watch to find out. Not only is Mr. Price home, this is the home he went to visit his friend, but his live-in domestic partner, Victor, is there, plus another man named Dylan Ward. So what we find out is that he didn't just go and, you know, try to sleep on the couch of a friend, is that he arrived and there was three guys there. Even though... This friend of his sounds like very distressed on the 911 call and everything. When the when the paramedics arrive, the three men are like just out of the shower, like with red with wet hair. Uh, they do discuss how they are a polyamorous gay family, and they're all like very flat, very body language is very neutral like like on the phone for 911 it was like very excited yeah and then when the cops show up they've taken showers sure whatever that you know there's more information in the documentary but the interviews that are featured in this documentary that will ultimately kind of show the audience it's basically done where you're led to your own conclusion because it's unsolved but there are interviews with the federal prosecutor the criminal defense attorney and and who were both actively involved in the case 14 years ago, albeit like obviously on different sides. There's discussions between the filmmakers themselves and friends of Mr. Wands who were highlighted in the film and the kind of the ins- insight on that. As you can tell, this overall mystery kind of, uh, it's hard to decipher. Like I said, they go through some twists and turns, but... Like before you, you, you start to find out things like, you know, before the paramedic arrived, the alleged murder weapon was like modified and they move things and you just sort of, it's a multi-million dollar home. What ends up happening is they sort of say like, could this have been a, some kind of sexual assault with the trio of Robert Price, Victor Zaborski and Dylan Ward being brought in on obstruction of justice charges in late 2008 all the way from their uh, residence in Florida, because I think this happened in D.C., as I remember. The impending court case was consequently treated by outsiders as a murder trial without explicitly labeling it as such, but they're still piecing together an unsolved murder mystery and Mm. placing it all inside of this documentary. So it's a fascinating kind of insight into the real life. The article I was reading sort of said it was a real life game of clue that leaves you asking questions. Sure. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's good. I haven't watched that one either, but this, you know, I read (laughs) about it. We might have to watch them. Maybe so. Maybe we'll watch those too. Maybe we won't. I Maybe don't we know. won't. <laughs> I uh, I want to just add one last little piece here, unless you have anything else. Nope, I want to introduce a case that I had started talking about over a year ago, and then you know, as cases do, they there's a lot of in between before things go to trial. Local case for Shannon and me: a woman by the name of Rebecca Grossman, a Hidden Hills woman, drove nearly half a mile after fatally striking two boys on a Westlake Village road at high speed and told deputy her. Mercedes Mercedes-Benz had become disabled after she had hit something. 
according to testimony and video played during the third day of her preliminary hearing Wednesday. So the preliminary hearing has happened. A little bit about this woman. She was out during like the late afternoon, apparently having drinks with a friend, and they administered a DUI test to her. She continued to ask at this, like, are the children okay? Da, 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 da. Like she's starting to say that, you know, it wasn't the alcohol. Um, there was something really unsafe. Now her attorneys are trying to say that there was something really unsafe about that cross in the road. So they're starting to build a defense around how even if she would have been intoxicated, the likelihood of hitting these kids because of X, Y, and Z were highly likely. The problem is, is this woman was going to close to like 90 miles per hour in the middle of the day. Yep. And she was trailing a friend of hers. Um, she was tailing at high sp- speed, a sport utility driven by her friend. She is a socialite in the sense that she does hang out with high profile people with money and privilege. Her former friend is actually a Dodger, Scott Erickson, who was the first to go through the crosswalk and swerve to avoid the mother and three boys. So he had actually seen them and swerved. And then she came trailing behind and hit, hit the boys. So they're going to, as this hearing starts to go through, we'll talk, I'll, I'll continue to talk about it as we have the case files, but completely tragic, um, completely avoidable. This, this woman lost all of her kids in this really quick thing yeah it's awful i followed this in the local newspaper like from the week that it happened and it's been very interesting how the narrative has shifted because in the beginning it was like an accident like like it was an accident like kids walked out in front of the car yeah and they said that erickson's car was blocking her view of seeing these kids in the right that was the narrative like in the beginning Mm -hmm. was what an awful tragedy Mm -hmm. and then as the weeks went by because it's been going on for a while it changed to she was drunk Mm -hmm. and that whole thing happened. You know, Mm -hmm. like that was the narrative for a few weeks. And then the narrative shifted when she got lawyered up and started saying things about how, you know, starting to defend herself and saying really non-remorseful things. And that's right. Now we're here (laughs) (laughs) with with no one having any sympathy for her anymore. And then it came out, of course, how much money she and nobody likes rich people and blah, blah, blah. It's really a recipe for another one of those cases. And then there was um, a big article in L.A. The L.A. magazine did a big article on her. So it's been it's quite quite the drama. It has around here. Yes. Thanks for bringing that. Yeah. Yet another. Yet another. Karen. Yet another lady on trial. Rich white lady on trial in America. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, you guys, for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.